0: Welcome to Testing Code, a podcast about software development and software testing. In this episode, Anthony Shaw and I discuss flaky tests. What are they? Why are they bad? And what do we do about them? I'm proud to have DigitalOcean sponsor this episode. Thank you, DigitalOcean.
1: Hey, man. How are you? I'm doing great. How about you? I'm working on a, a new package called Wiley. Wiley? Yeah. Like the coyote? Yeah. And the idea is that it's looking at the complexity. But I'm thinking maybe just because there's lots of code packages which look at complexity of your code. I was thinking about making a tool that measures the complexity of your tests tests, and then reports on the history of that over time. So what I'm adding is basically like it's a command line tool and you can give it the test your test command like you know, PyTest or Python unit test discover. And basically, if it's a Git repository, it'll go and check out each revision and go and run the tests against it and then measure the complexity. I think that's cool. And it'll give you like a historical graph about the complexity of the different tests and the test modules and how it's going up or down over time and... Yeah, that was kind of the idea.
0: Yeah, because tests should not be complex.
1: No, they shouldn't. Yeah, They shouldn't be flaky either. Was this a question that somebody raised, or is this something that you wanted to talk about?
0: Yeah, it's just something I wanted to talk about. It's something uh, that I think a lot of people pretend that it doesn't exist, pretend that uh, only people that write bad tests have flaky test suites. But I think it's a little bit more prevalent than that. And uh, a couple articles came out not too long ago from... One from uh, Microsoft and one from uh, Dropbox about how they deal with uh, flaky tests. So that kind of inspired me to try to tackle this topic. And I, uh... so do you have any flaky tests?
1: Never. All my (laughs) tests are unflaky. No, no, no. (laughs) It's definitely over time I've experienced flaky test suites and flaky tests as well. Trying to pin them down is pretty tricky. I was actually just reminded the other day of, um, when I was uh, managing a small team of .NET developers, uh, one of the rules on the team was that if you broke the build, you had to wear a T-shirt with my face on it for the day, um, <laughs> which is is probably not the best policy. But it was supposed to encourage or discourage people from not checking the test suite before they published it to the source code repository. But, yeah.
0: Right. So if you, if you do that, then you have to, in order to do that, you have to have a test suite you, you trust. And so a flaky test is a bad thing. And by flaky, so I'm, we're going I'm going to define flaky as a test that sometimes passes and sometimes fails. And so a flaky test suite, it might be obvious, but it's a suite that of tests that has at least one or more flaky tests inside of it. The Distinction between a test and a the flaky test and a flaky suite is important because One of the fixes is to just move all of your flaky tests into one suite, and then most of your suites are fine, and you just have one suite of flaky tests. I wrote down a whole bunch of notes. Um, One of the things I'd I'd like to talk about kind of why they're bad and some ways to deal with them, and if we kind of look into what are some of the aspects of flaky tests, we can kind of uh, tease out of that how to fix them and how to avoid them. Is that definition of – does that – Jive with you is a test that sometimes passes and sometimes fails, or is there something else?
1: Yeah, that sounds... Is that the same as a fragile test then? Because I'm definitely familiar with fragile tests.
0: I've also heard it referenced as a non-deterministic test.
1: That sounds like a test where you're trying to measure something which has an element of randomness to it. Whereas I'm thinking like fragile tests is where there's part of the system's state in there which could change or it's too closely coupled to the exact situation in which the test was written and passed for the first time. And then if the environment is different, then it doesn't pass. So like if, if it worked on my machine, the test pass, and then I check it in, and then someone else runs it, and it doesn't work for them, that would be a fragile test.
0: I guess that is different Then I would think of a flaky test as if you if you run the exact same thing twice, sometimes it'll fail and sometimes it'll pass.
1: How What situation would that happen in? Because computers don't have like they're not fuzzy it, it, something either works or it or it doesn't often a non-deterministic test
0: something changes over the time you run the test over again some of the causes would be like possibly your external system that could change like your test that talks with an external service that is perhaps has latency changes that it sometimes it answers in four milliseconds and sometimes it answers in seven milliseconds noise in the system in in some cases there's actual noise like you've you've got a system that has a uh, deals with um i don't know an input system from like a, a from a camera or some a microphone or something
1: there could be actual uh, noisy inputs oh. things like that so i'm hoping these are these are integration tests you're talking about like you wouldn't i'd hope you wouldn't end up in a situation where you've got flaky unit tests
0: i think that's true there tend to be the more you have a larger system level test the more flakiness creeps in, and that's part of it. So let's uh, look at some of the causes. What we're talking about really is lack of isolation. So a test that tests a large piece of the system is going to be more likely to be flaky than like something that just tests one function. You would hope that there wasn't actual like you know, random bits flipping in your computer to make something go wrong. Right. That's one of the things you have to deal with is uh, try to figure out if the test is possibly at the wrong level. If the other thing might be the state of the system the starting state of the test isn't completely controlled by the test environment
1: yeah so how do you know if it's a flaky test or if it's a flaky system like if it's cuz for example the the example you gave like the thing responded slower than it should have done or it wasn't it wasn't working or whatever Now you'd hope that the application was more resilient than just bombing out and failing a test. Like How do you know whether a flaky test is not actually just an indication that the system is not very resilient?
0: That's one of the problems is you don't. If you've got a handful or many flaky tests, every time every time you run the suite, you've got to go through and examine and check every one to make sure that it's not possibly a new one. And that that's fatiguing. And what happens is a couple of things happen. The people responsible for the test suite get tired of doing that. And so they will see the same test fail every time and just assume it's the same failure. It might actually be a new failure hiding in there. So you want to address this quickly so you're not passing through fail- new failures with when you shouldn't. The other thing is the development team start not trusting the tests. They don't trust the test suite anymore.
1: These are all problems. And so trying to address them is very important. You test quite a lot of physical stuff in your job, don't you? Like, I'd I'd expect that when you're testing physical equipment, things would not work for other reasons, like environmental reasons, like there's a meteor shower or a neutrino hit the the motherboard or something.
0: We have better isolation than that. But for instance, uh, we've got, I've right now I'm working with, uh, you know, three or four different versions of the hardware in different shapes and sizes. And, and, uh, uh, bandwidths. And, um, for me, uh, sometimes when I'm talking about noise, we're actually talking about, uh, electrical noise. Like, uh, when we're measuring electrical signals, there is electrical s- noise within, within the environment itself.
1: So that yeah, you raise an important question as well, which is, is it good practice to split up your tests? Cause I know you'd have unit tests and integration tests, and then you'd have other types of tests. In terms of how often you run the unit tests, you'd want to do them as frequently as possible because then if you've just made, if you just changed something which has broken uh, expected behavior, you've introduced a bug or something, you'd want to know as soon as possible so you could identify root cause. But you wouldn't want to go and run a full integration suite like every time you save a file or something because if it takes half an hour, half a day, whatever to run the tests, you'd want to run it less frequently i guess like is that is that pretty common practice that you'd split the two things up and then if the flaky tests happen more in the integration testing and you don't run them as often then i guess it would be harder to actually identify what the root cause was because if the test wasn't flaky before and now it started to be flaky but there's been 25 changes over that day by five different people like how would you identify What the issue was. That's an issue, right. So I would want, as far as the levels of testing go.
0: This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the preferred cloud platform of hundreds of thousands of innovative companies. DigitalOcean makes it easy to deploy, manage, and scale applications with an intuitive control panel and API designed for developers. Get started with a free $100 credit towards your first project on DigitalOcean and experience everything the platform has to offer, such as cloud firewalls, real-time monitoring and alerts, global data centers, object storage, and the best support anywhere. Join the over 150,000 businesses already creating amazing things on DigitalOcean. Claim your credit today at do.co slash test and code. As far as the levels of testing go, I would want to run, if I, if I introduced an error in my code, I would want to run the test immediately that would catch that error. The problem is I don't know how to do that. You have levels, though. There's an idea of a, a smoke test, a high-level happy path testing through the entire system and a handful of those through lots of different parts of the system so that if anybody, like, totally broke something, we would know right away. I think those are good things to run all the time. Let's say you like a a situation where you've got like five different people working on code and checking in things during the day. I think a good practice is to have the, even if you have a test suite that runs for an hour is it just sits around and waits uh, for somebody to push code onto particular branches. And if you've, if you've got the freedom to uh, run multiple test suites in parallel, you can do this of uh, run, run everything every time somebody changes some code if you can't to do that then you run less you run you run an amount of tests that you can i think that that's completely fine and a reasonable strategy but um but at some point you've got to run everything and the sooner you find out the better even five people changing code all day long at least they know what they did yesterday if the, if they have to wait until the t- tomorrow morning to find out that the system's broken uh-huh. if you have to wait like till the end of the sprint to run your entire suite that's bad because you may have changed the code two weeks ago and who knows what else you've added on top of it
1: yeah plus if it doesn't pass then you're at the end of the sprint and you've got no deliverables so that's yeah. another issue
0: so we also break up tests into different areas because most of the time a developer can know the part of the system that they may have mucked up like if they're working in the area where the, you're controlling the input frequency, for instance, you're probably not worried that you're going to mess up the file printing service. They're completely unrelated systems. So you don't have to run the entire test suite of everything, but you could run the focused tests on that subsystem. And huh. that's that's usually what what we do. I'm amused by an idea that you... You wait for system like lengthy system tests because they're lengthy. So you run the unit tests because they're because it's possible to run the entire suite fast. However, they're so focused. Why are you running the entire suite? The only thing you could possibly be breaking is the the tests that touch your
1: exact code. Ah, uh, in theory, yeah. <laughs> but I, th- I th- if I had a penny for every time I'd change something and then broken something else which was completely unexpected yeah i don't know in terms of determining the scope it's it's pretty difficult i guess in unit tests it should be it should be clearer but there's plenty of times where where i've made a change and then i've broken a test in some other way that i could never have anticipated which is why it's just nice to have them there as a safety net
0: yeah um the in the the place where i really like unit tests the most are when there's uh, design design decisions and assumptions that are made that aren't aren't obvious all the time. And then when you go in to, to add some functionality or change something or you go, you know, especially if there's a workaround in there for a particular reason to fix a particular bug and you go, wow, this is complicated. I'm gonna simplify this, and you take it out and the code looks cleaner, but suddenly your test case breaks. And then you're reminded of why that's in there, of like, oh yeah, we had to put that workaround in place because of Customer X complained about blah. Those are great ways to maintain some knowledge of why why decisions were made. Hmm. One of the things I wanted to address was, uh, it was what do you do with them? A lot of people will just rerun the test, and uh, hopefully it will pass the second time.
1: Yeah, if you try turning it off and on again, that's basically yeah. the solution.
0: <laughs> Rerunning is something that everybody will do anyway. There's even a PyTest plugin that will rerun failures a certain number of times. And actually, I find it useful, but used sparingly, because you know you're going to rerun it anyway. So why not just rerun it right after it fails, and then you already have that data? It's one of those automating things that you are going to do anyway. In the articles we're going to link to, there's a Dropbox article and a Microsoft article, but I've heard it from other places, too. There's this idea of quarantine. We really want to trust the test suite, so the flaky tests need to be taken out of the general test suite. The Dropbox article is interesting is where they have this automated system that if any test fails, they rerun stuff. And if uh, the test that failed before passes the second time, they completely they quarantine it automatically. They completely take it out of the system and put it into another area it's because they can't trust the test. It didn't tell them whether or not something's broken. However, there's a danger there is that you're reducing your test coverage right away, and it may be drastic. So trying to keep the number of tests in quarantine and the time that they're quarantined to really small is good. Once you have them separated, there's some things you can do. You can fix it, or sometimes it's a good idea to take a look at the test and find out whether or not it's a redundant test. There is redundancy in test systems, just like there is redundancy in code sometimes. And uh, it may be that it's um, it's a duplicate test. It tests a similar feature that somebody else is already testing different ways, and it could just be deleted. So like refactoring code, don't forget about your delete button. One of the, the things that was interesting is there's Dropbox solution has this thing where they um, they have a function called under test. It's a, oh, what are those things called? We use the with
1: clause. Context manager.
0: Yeah, it's a context manager. So they've got test code that only parts that are actually in the under test clause can fail the test and everything else will throw a different error that couldn't test. Looked at that and thought, well, that's exactly what PyTest fixtures are. Because if you push as much code as you can for setup and teardown into fixtures, PyTest will separate those and you get errors for fixture failures and fail for test failures. But it's a reasonable solution is to minimize minimize the code that's actually in the test. Then, uh, yeah, then you got to go fix your tests. So we we talked about some of the causes of uh, flakiness, like uh, the system state might be different or depending on noise or there's not enough isolation. Oh, we didn't talk about isolation between tests, though. That's an interesting thing is that sometimes when you have a test suite and one test always fails and then you rerun it and it passes, it isn't because anything outside of the test suite changed. It might be an order dependency. If you're running your tests in order, in one order they pass and in another order they fail. That's uh, one of the reasons why PyTest has a randomized plugin that you can um, run your tests in random order. I think we've talked about a lot of the causes. You just undo those. Sometimes you can determine why a test is flaky, but sometimes you just have to guess. You can say maybe it's that the test isn't isolated from the rest of the system. So we just don't understand what system state it's depending on, or completely um, try to completely reset a system from to a clean state between each test.
1: That's really hard to do.
0: It's hard to do on some systems, and it's also very. It adds a lot of time to your tests. I'm working with hardware, and if I had to completely start from square one for every test, it adds a lot of time.
1: Yeah, I, d- I remember lots of flaky tests, which were due to the system state, and the system state was the was related to, I guess, Windows servers and the way they've been configured and people jumping in and fixing things to make a certain test pass and then therefore breaking somebody else's test and, like, if if it's non-deterministic and you don't reset the environment between each deployment, then it can be really difficult and I think that's one of the great features of um, things like Docker is that you can basically try and get as much isolation in the environment state as possible. Like, or what I call immutable systems. You know, like the actual container that you're deploying is supposed to be unchangeable, and the only things it has in its state are sort of temporary data. There's no way to like pause a Docker container. It's if you stop it, it it deletes itself effectively. So all the st- issues you used to have with you know installing patches on Windows Server and then that breaks something else, and you know it can you get different issues between deployments. If you've got a deterministic Docker container. And you know that that's immutable. Then you can deploy that component of infrastructure to different different environments. But it's just a, a different piece of tin hosting the same bit of code so it should work exactly the same way
0: yeah and that's a case where i think it would be fine to have your test system depend on that same fixed environment as well it is a little bit of a problem if you've got a test environment that is fixed and it always is the same state but your actual deployment isn't fixed you're deploying into lots of different environments you at least should have some tests that that test something in multiple different environments if that's where you're deploying to
1: yeah yeah because your production environment and your staging environment should look the same, but when your production environment costs two or three million dollars, then you're trying to convince the person to sign a check to get a staging environment that just sits there, either ninety nine percent of the time for two million bucks, and it's a pretty hard conversation. Yeah,
0: yeah, definitely. I want to talk about one of the things that um, one of the article talked about was a uh, proactively rooting out flaky tests. And, uh, this was a, basically what they had is every time they've get a, a clean, clean system test, you've got, so, um, all the tests pass, you can rerun the same everything. So nothing else has changed. You've got the same tests, the same everything and just rerun them. And if any, any tests that failed at that for on the rerun, you've already, you've already said that the, the software is good, but now you're looking for flaky tests and if any of the tests fail on the second time, automatically stick the flag them as a as a flaky test and put them in your quarantine system. And there's again, you've got to try to get them out as fast as possible. But that sort of automatic uh, quarantining is a, an interesting idea, and and proactively running, and uh, then we can look at look for things like test flakiness and stuff ahead of time instead of wondering if something's flaky. You, when we actually do want to know whether or not a new change caused a failure.
1: Is it okay to add degrees of tolerance to the assertions then to, I guess, make them a little bit less, I don't know if that fixes the issue or not, but like if you say it's like it's a timing issue or it's a, you know, the state's slightly different or something. Could you put degrees of tolerance into the assertions?
0: Yeah. (laughs) One example is asserting for equality of a floating point number. Don't do that but there is uh, almost equals that is in in the somewhere in the standard library but the the pytest has a prox. so you can have uh, two numbers comp- you're comparing them and one of them you say approximately this value and by default it looks at basically the you know floating point rounding errors that happen and it's pretty good with the pre- the defaults are pretty darn good if it's just you think maybe the number was represented a little bit differently and you want to make sure that it's equal, but you can, but it has tolerance built into the function too. So you can pass in a tolerance. And if, uh, and that, I think that's a good idea. It's also just really, what are you testing? Is it, is it really important that it be five milliseconds or if, or are you really looking for catastrophic, failure? Because in like, let's say you're trying to test to see if the connection to, an external database ser- service is is gone. Well, five milliseconds is probably too quick. You, a five second timeout, like a huge tolerance is still gonna tell you whether or not the system's completely not there. And most of the time you're not gonna hit that five second penalty unless there's a real problem. For hardware stuff, I mean, we deal with this all the time. Um, we have to build tolerances in almost all of our measurement tests because There is real noise in the system, so we have to accommodate for that. And then self-calibration. So we do um, a lot of times at the beginning of a test, if a test really has to care about exact uh, latencies, then we measure the latency before we start the rest of the test. So we know some latencies to take out of the system. Or level offsets. So a cable will drop the signal a certain amount and all the connections and all that stuff. And if we swap cables, we don't want to have to calibrate all of them. It's easy at the start of a test suite to just go through and calibrate, do a quick calibration of all the all the entire system to see how much loss or frequency offsets in the system. Huh. But then we also still have to just have tolerances. You have to know the, the domain that you're testing as well. Because some tests, I want we need to know the exact number within... Within a very small tolerance. Yeah, definitely tolerances are good. So you were, uh, taught, before we started, we, you were talking about something you're working on that's dealing with um, test code that might be too complex. So do you have any, uh, any advice for uh, good tests and bad test design?
1: Uh, yeah, just keep it small. Try and test one thing. Try and test one behavior. Then on a unit test, obviously, and then an integration test. Try by testing uh, a few components first. Yeah, and I'm, I've been working on this article for Real Python, which um, still hasn't been published. There's a <laughs> hopefully by the time this podcast episode is out, it'll be public. But it's a called Getting Started with Testing in Python, and it's like a beginner tutorial for you know, basically how to start writing tests in Python, why you should write them, yeah, and basically like all the steps you should go if you're not familiar with testing in any way. And one of the analogies I was using at the beginning was that if you wanted to test whether the lights work in your car, you'd get in the car and you know, turn the lights on. And then if the, you go outside the car and you can see the lights are on, then that means the, the lights don't work. So if they don't work, then you'd assume that the bulbs are broken, but you don't necessarily know that that's the case because you could the switch could be broken, the battery could be dead, the computer could be dodgy. Like I've got that issue at the moment in my car, where the blinkers don't work randomly. <laughs> like, that's a flaky test.
0: <laughs> They're just
1: blinking at a really slow pace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's an example. So a unit test would obviously be to take the bulb out and to test it by hot wiring it to the battery, maybe. But that's that's not a fair test to do all those integration components because if you only test the whole system, then you don't know which part fails. So like when it does break, it's impossible. And what ends up happening is that you just either put tolerances into the tests which shouldn't necessarily be there like oh let's just run it twice and see if it passes yes it passed a second time okay ship it like that's a really classic thing that happens or people end up saying okay we'll just take out that assertion because it's too fragile yeah and then okay now it passes let's ship it so that's you need to have a good balance between not too fragile unit tests and uh, integration tests which are fairly resilient but they also identify where the system is not very resilient against failure, because failure does happen.
0: Yeah. For the expedient's sake, if I know most of the time the lights usually work, the fastest test to write is the turn the lights on and go look to see if they're on.
1: Mm, yeah, absolutely.
0: I want to question your test environment. It's a little more complicated than it needs to be. If you do that test in the dark, you don't have to get out of the car.
1: That's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> the hardest one is testing brake lights. <laughs> um, I yeah. found that three bricks is the uh, is the perfect amount. <sighs> three bricks, yeah, to put on the brake pedal so oh. that you can run around the back of the car and you can see whether the brake light's on.
0: You have kids? Can you just want <laughs> one, one of the kids to go step on the
1: brake pedal for you? <laughs> I don't trust them to step on the right one. Uh, okay, they're only small. So
0: one of the things that we talked a little bit about not flaky tests but fragile tests and. A lot of times when people talk about fragile tests, they're talking about user interfaces. I think my only advice really for that sort of stuff is to try to keep GUI level tests to just testing the presentation if you want to do that. I think it's a good idea. But doing your entire system testing for all corner cases through the user through a, a graphical user interface is going to be problematic.
1: Yeah, there's a there's a couple of ways to do that as well. Like um if you're doing Selenium or using one of the, there's some providers, you can use some like cloud providers which host Selenium tests for you because setting up Selenium with multiple browsers is extremely painful and a lot of hard work. So you, there's actually companies you can basically pay to go and run the test for you and you just give them the test steps and the URLs and it, it does it all for you. One of those is called Ghost Inspector that I've used quite a bit. And a cool thing about Ghost Inspector is that in the tests, you can actually write a visual test this, and you can put a tolerant degree of tolerance in. So you say, if, this, if you take a screenshot of this page before you try and click on anything, does it look more than 30% different to the last time? And if it does, then like fail the test and you can decide what that percentage difference is. So like 2%, 5% is fine. But if somebody broke the CSS style sheet for the application, or somebody's, like, screwed up one of the HTML tags or something, then that's something that Selenium would just ignore and just continue anyway. But Ghost Inspector and and a few other tools like this would catch that kind of visual er error.
0: Yeah, and these are essentially then change detector tests. Yeah. I assume that there's ways to to seed them so that you have something to compare to, right? Yeah. Yeah. The other thing is, like, different browsers. Like, uh, somehow, sometimes, you know, browser changes... I'm guessing uh, could affect you, and if all of all of the developers are using Firefox, but most of your users are using
1: everything, yeah, that's you're never going to see the problems during development. I think yeah, things work with Firefox because getting Firefox to work with Selenium is really easy, and getting it to work with Chrome is a pain. <laughs> so I think there, <laughs> there are so many automated UI tests for Firefox that's really helped.
0: One of the things I like to do for redundancy in tests is to have my tracer bullet tests run at different, all different levels. So I'll have like a a happy path test case that, that is one of these long rambling test cases. Like I'm going to go log in and then go do this action and do some other action. And uh, so some entire act like a customer test. But not very many of these, just a handful that touch all parts of the system. And then run those at every layer that's possible through the through the GUI, through the API, through uh, subcutaneous layer if you have one, or or uh, subsystems, uh, and and having the same data go through all layers or all these tests it seems silly and redundant, but it can isolate whether or not your light bulb is burnt out or your or some cable or something. So the last thing I want to touch on is just I think it's really cool if people have awesome tests practices and they never have to deal with failures or flakiness but a lot of people do and know that you're not alone and there's some uh some big companies and people all over the world that deal with it and i think it's cool for people to talk about their solutions so if there's a solution you have for dealing with flaky tests or how you're how you're doing automatic quarantining or let me know and if it's a really cool solution maybe we'll i'll get you on the podcast and we can talk about it or add it to it or we'll bring it up later because I think it's important for us to learn from each other. So that's why
1: we're bringing this up.
0: I, and I'm l- really looking forward to, to your write-up. The more people writing about testing is is
1: good. Yeah, hopefully soon. Hopefully soon next week.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, thanks a lot. And uh, we'll hopefully talk to you later. All right. Bye, everyone. Thanks again to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode. Claim your $100 credit at do.co slash code that link is also on the show notes page at testincode.com slash 50. Thanks to Anthony for the great conversation. And thank you for listening, for sharing this broadcast with friends and colleagues, and for supporting the show through Patreon. That's all for now. Now go test something.